term. Um, as I think all of you know by now, my name is Liz. I'm one of the co-conveners of the African Studies Seminar this term. And this week, we're really excited to have uh, William Monteith to be our presenter. Uh, Will is a lecturer in the Geography Department at Queen Mary University of London. And Will and I actually have quite similar research interests, although geographically a bit different. So we've actually been at, at a number of workshops and conferences together. And whenever I hear Will give a talk, I always feel like there's not enough time. Um, so I'm really excited for today because hopefully there will be enough time. So too much to time. Yeah. Maybe not too much. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Liz, for the invitation. And, and thanks so much to a great audience um, turning out today. Great to be here. First time in, in African studies at, at Oxford. Um, and so, and also apologies for scaling back the title slightly. Um, in the kind of heady days of late September before teaching started, I had this idea of, of reading a lot more than I have managed to over the last five or six weeks. Um, so it's been scaled back slightly from rethinking work through racial capitalism to rethinking work through Ugandan marketplace, kind of retreating back to my case study, but thinking through different literatures, um, one of which um, includes strands of, of racial capitalism. So happy to talk a little bit more um, about that at the end. Um, and the, the talk really is the story of... of my attempts to transform my PhD thesis, um, which I completed in development studies at UEA a few years back, into um, a monograph. And so it's the story of kind of trying different hats on um, my kind of ethnographic case study, if you will, um, in, kind of with an eye to, 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 to making a, a larger argument. Um, so I'm going to start with a few kind of reflections on, on what I see as the changing world of work or some of the kind of key dynamics and tensions in the changing world of work as a way to open up discussion um, in relation to kind of new theorizations or openings for thinking about um, work but also life beyond work. Um, interventions um, such as those raised by James Ferguson, for example, most recently in, in, in Give a Man a Fish, um, among a number of, of, of other scholars. Um, and then to move a little bit um, more concretely to um, the context of, of Kampala and my field site here in, in Nakasero Market, it's a central marketplace in, in Kampala, Uganda. Um, and to think through what this case study, what this marketplace might do, how it might help, might help us rethink these kind of debates around work, um, both historically through a bit, bit of archival work that I did, um, but also ethnographically um, through a year of, of ethnographic field work um, in this particular marketplace. So, to make a start. We're living in strange times uh, in terms of um, what we understand to be the, the world of work. So one of the most historically most powerful kind of representations of work, um, or the absence of work, is the unemployment rate, the un official unemployment rate. And you could argue these kind of representations have gone a long way to or, uh, form a, la a large part of the contemporary legitimacy, if there's such a thing, of, of the current um, UK and US administrations. Right? So very powerful kind of indicators. Um, and, and indicators that, that, that have been used to, to justify various forms of intervention. Um, uh, in the case of Uganda, um, kind of this conf constant kind of concern and emphasis um, and, and, and kind of moral concern with, with youth employment and youth unemployment. Um, and so these kind of statistics are rather familiar, right? Statist historically low unemployment rates in the UK, around 4%, um, and much larger unemployment rates in Uganda, which rise to, to up to about 40% for, for the youth population. And yet at the same time, we know that these historically low unemployment rates in the UK conceal the fact that the majority of those in poverty are either in work or residing in working families. And at the same time, these comparatively much larger unemployment rates in Uganda, um, the kind of 
representations of, of, of crisis, if you like, of moral concern, um, conceal the fact that, um, according to other representations, um, Uganda was declared um, the most entrepreneurial country in the world recently by the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor. So how might we make sense of these kind of changing landscapes of, of work and these geographical di differentiations? Um, what's the kind of broader story here? Um, well, there are different prongs to this. I mean, one of which is, is, of course, the inability or the increased inability of waged employment, the increased irrelevance of waged employment um, in most people's lives. Um, the redundancy, therefore, of conventional measures, such as the conventional unemployment rate, which in the UK includes people who are working two hours a week as an Uber driver, for example, to capture um, the realities of people's diverse working lives. And thirdly, the increased reliance on alternative and additional activities and exchanges to provide for people's basic needs. So we're seeing, if you like, a destabilization over the last 10, 20 years of conventional ideas of work and what it is to work. And at the same time, we're seeing the opening up of alternative scenarios and alternative theoretical space um, for thinking about how income identity and security might be woven together differently, right? whether for the better or for the worse. And it's in this kind of theoretical space um, that we see the arguments, the more recent contributions of, of, of people such as Ferguson, arguing that across much of the world, people today lack access both to land and to waged employment. And these people form an increasingly prominent part of our social and political reality. Equally important, those occupying such ill-defined and precarious social locations are both pioneering new modes of livelihood and making new kinds of political demands, right? So these kind of shifts, these kind of transformations, needn't be um, the source of, of the kind of forms of condemnation and crisis that they often are, right, they're often associated with. Um, that there's also the seeds of an alternative way of thinking about work within this kind of current scenario, current crisis. Um, yet at the same time, some of the barriers to, to thinking in different ways around work um, are the kind of theoretical baggage that we bring with us into this conversation, right? And so scholars like Ferguson and, and Franco Barchesi in, in South African context um, argue that this, this idea of wage labor, or this reduction of work to wage labor and the wage relation remains hegemonic in the social sciences, reproducing what Barchesi calls a politics of labor nostalgia, or an inability to kind of move beyond um, this kind of narrow conceptualization of work. Um, and so Ferguson and Ali have argued more recently that there's a need for a profound analytical decentering of waged and salaried employment as a presumed norm or telos, and a consequent reorientation of our empirical research protocols. So the challenge, if you were, if you like, is to produce a reading which we might consider to be more politically useful. Right? That is to say, if we suspend this idea of, of waged employment, or the suspend this singular idea of workers' waged employment, what alternative types of social, political, economic projects might come into view? Right? Beyond, for example, the trade union movement. Right? Beyond, um, for example, the ILO's decent work agenda. Right? What alternative types of projects might start to surface and, and come onto the horizon? Um, so some broader questions raised, if you like, within this kind of uncertain world of work and this, this kind of new be like theoretical terrain, um, how might we reclaim work from the confines of wage labor? And more specifically, thinking about the context of Uganda, how might we research and represent, this is um, social scientists sitting here in, in, in the UK, alternative modes of cooperation, production, and self-provisioning in Africa without normalizing exploitative and degrading conditions of work? And so, some of the kind of points of departure here, um, I find some of the kind of people I find useful for thinking through this puzzle 
Um, first of all, an emphasis in, in Bembe and Fanon's kind of scholarship on, on the importance of historicizing the wage relation in Africa, both as a form of violence and a technique of governance that takes on different forms um, in different African contexts. Secondly, to quote um, the work, more recent work of Melamed, um, and the kind of the emphasis of, of the, that's coming out of much of the work in urban ethnography, um, by reckoning with lived practices and living alternative to wage labour, and examining the integrative potential of new relations for nurturing what she terms social being through the material activities of living, going back to Marx. And then thinking with Fanon about kind of reinterpreting the, the so-called lumpen proletariat, um, the importance of taking seriously the demands and the transformative potential of people located in these so-called marginal um, socioeconomic positions, people kind of pioneering alternative modes of life um, and livelihood. And so what might be some of the stumbling blocks? And I think what's the conversation that's happening between some of these kind of uh, more radical, if you like, ways of thinking about work um, and some of the more conventional and dominant ways in which um, scholars have historically thought about work, in, in particularly in urban African contexts. Um, well, I, I think I can think of three dominant ways um, in the current kind of um, landscape um, that work is thought about in, in much of urban Africa in particular. And these are the kind of categories of informal, entrepreneurial, and surplus, as I do of informal work, entrepreneurial work, or entrepreneurship, and surplus work, surplus populations. The first of these debates is a, is a very familiar one at this point. Right? So informal work, which dates back to the work of the ILO, Keith Hart in the early 1970s, um, as being economic activity unregistered or minimally registered with the state. Right? Um, a discourse or a category that was central uh, to the kind of legitimation of state-led models of development in the 1970s. Um, and one which really reifies the state as the institution responsible um, for providing structure, security, and protection in work. Um, and so while this has been helpful in many ways, for, notably for thinking a bit more critically um, about the role of, for example, women um, and their relationship to the economy more broadly, it's been critiqued, first of all, for conjuring this dualistic idea of the economy, of the formal and the informal, um, and, and kind of missing the connections between different segments of, of economic activity. Um, but perhaps more significantly for, for this kind of question, the question I'm asking today, um, for the fact that it renders deviant entire sectors of e economic activity, social and economic activity, that have long constituted what Janet McGaffey has termed the real or the popular economy um, in many urban African contexts. Secondly, and more recently, um, there's a newer discourse, uh, the last kind of 20 or so years, going back to the 1980s, on African workers being entrepreneurial, um, which dates back really to the, the World Bank and other kind of um, powerful development institutions rebranding, if you like, the informal sector in the 1980s. Um, and instead of seeing uh, exploitation, um, instead of seeing segregation, instead of seeing um, uh, marginalization, starting to see economic activity um, as being uh, kind of starting to see these activities as volunteerist, right? So starting to see economic activities as being deliberately separate from the state, right? Reifying the market and particularly consumption as the institution responsible for generating and regulating work. Central to a switch towards market-led development, development in the 1980s, as we know, um, and critiqued extensively, um, particularly more recent literature and, and work by Catherine Dolan on, on the entrepreneurial self, um, for seeking individual solutions to socially produced troubles, 
um, and equating failure, economic failure, with individual deficiency. Um, so people in places like Nakasura Market are now seen um, as the kind of individually responsible for the development of Uganda, individually responsible for contributing to the national gross product um, of Uganda. And so we see um, a new kind of model of, of, of kind of development intervention in the work space, um, which is all around kind of rethinking people in marketplaces as, as entrepreneurs and, and as job creators. And then thirdly, a categorization of, of, of African work and African workers um, a surplus, um, derived from, from particularly more structuralist and, and, and kind of different strands of Marxist thinking um, on, on economic activity in, in urban Africa today. Um, so surplus work being understood as economic activities that are unvalued or undervalued uh, by capitalist processes of accumulation, um, central to what Gibson Graham term um, capitalocentric theory um, and intervention. And so the tendency here, and, and the critique here, is that, that by, by kind of um, this constant emphasis on notions of waste and expendability and surplus um, become a kind of totalizing framework, right? Um, suggesting, as Kathleen Miller and Vinnie Goodwadi and amongst others have said, uh, as if to suggest that those not employed in wage labor or those subsisting outside of wage labor are somehow not engaged in any other productive activities or efforts in their lives. So the tendency here within this, this scholarship and this framework um, to reduce the complexities of work to the use value of capitalism. So if we're thinking across these kind of three genres, um, these three kind of categories, if you like, for thinking through work, um, what are the kind of gen what's the kind of general picture that's emerging here? Well, overall, these conceptualizations all center a relatively narrow understanding of work as non-domestic paid, institutionalized, market-based employment. It's worth emphasizing that in historical terms, this is, of course, a relatively new idea of work, right? It's still a relatively new and novel idea of work, dating back to the project of European industrialization um, and its export through colonialism. And what this idea of work excludes um, is all what a, kind of much of the anthropological scholarship on, on how socioeconomic life takes place in, in places like Uganda, right? So it excludes the dimensions of the reciprocal, the immediate, and the gratuitous, um, which are all pushed out of the economic sphere altogether, kind of evacuated from the economic sphere, and excluded from official statistics, right? So we see a kind of tying down within these, these concepts of a, of, a, of a relatively narrow idea of work and what it means to work. <coughs> Um, and Ferguson and, and Fred Cooper have argued that, that underpinning this kind of tendency to revere to this, this rather narrow conceptualization of work um, is a broader myth of, of proletarianization in Africa. Right? Um, so Cooper has argued that labor history is too wedded to the meta-narrative of, prole of proletarianization, um, which treats this as a universal trend, right? beginning in, in Europe and rolling out um, over the African continent. And yet we know that the number of people who fit into the category of the wage worker in post-colonial Africa did not grow as expected. And instead it was the category of, of it was the kind of alternate categories, right? Invariously known as customary labor, informal labor, precarious labor, surplus labor, et cetera, et cetera, um, that expanded. And while colonial administrations reproduced a particular discourse of work um, to define and enforce these categories and associated ideas of private property, labor time, and discipline, um, Africans were trying to give such categories their own meanings and to seek alternatives to wage labor um, in responding to their growing interest in, in, in commodities, Cooper argues. And Ferguson earlier this year um, has talked about 
the proletariat as a kind of inappropriate metaphor um, in the context of South Africa. So historically, a very particular category used to analyze political economic forms of 19th century Europe, which now struggles to find traction um, in the contemporary context in urban South Africa, right? and strugg struggles to kind of get to grips with and to describe um, the kind of diversity of, of kind of forms of life and labor that take place, for example, in, in South African cities. So this is to say that this, there's a kind of meta-narrative here that underpins a lot of the conversations, a lot of the discourses around work in Africa, which conceals more than it reveals about the realities um, of working life. So where might we look for, for kind of all, the seeds of alternative ideas, of alter, alternative kind of theorizations um, of work? For kind of pluralizing, if you like, um, the con conceptual apparatus that we have to describe evolving forms of work and livelihood in, in rapidly urbanizing contexts, um, such as Kampala. Well, Ferguson off has an off offers up this idea of distributive labor, the work of surviving by accessing or making claims on the resources of others. Right? This is the idea that rather than production, most livelihood activities in, in contemporary um, southern African cities conform to ideas of distribution. Right. Uh, we're living in a distributive economy rather than a productive economy. Um, and secondly, Julia Eliashar's idea of fatic labor. Right? So the, the, the work not of, of um, producing value in the forms of capital or commodities for sale on, on the capitalist market, but the work of creating and maintaining social channels through which information and resources can flow, which he argues has been um, fundamental to the historical survival, particularly of, of, of women, um, in this case in, in Cairo. And then if we think about the kind of um, proliferation of studies um, emerging within um, urban ethnography um, in Africa, um, we see an emphasis on a much broader, suddenly our kind of conceptual range of vocabulary becomes much broader, right? So there's emphasis on, on debris, hustle, zigzag, and make do, right? And this literature, this kind of ethnographic literature um, emerging from, from the kind of um, prolonged engagement with African cities um, places emphasis rather on the wage relation on ideas of occupational straddling, of, occupation, of simultaneously occupying multiple um, occupations, of improvisation and experimentation, of skills acquired outside of formal education, of kin and social relations, and again, going back to Ferguson, on, on kind of systems of reciprocation and redistribution. And so the, this, this literature is really kind of playing with these kind of taken-for-granted delineations between work time and leisure time, between work and leisure, and between work and life, right? And so scholars like Tiemi and Simone um, have, have, have kind of conceptualized these kind of activities as forms of life work, right? Straddling these kind of taken-for-granted divisions um, that date back um, to categories derived from the historical experiences of industrial countries um, in Western Europe. Furthermore, we might think about, so we've got this kind of, in, a broader kind of conceptual apparatus, if you like, to think through some of these questions, and some of these puzzles. Um, we might also think about what are the conventional sites in which work has been studied um, in Africa. Right? Um, so we might think back to historical um, ethnographic work and the proliferation of um, anthropological studies of, of the copper belt, for example, in, in, in Zambia, um, and then thinking about um, to a lesser extent, but the kind of proliferation of more orthodox Marxist concerns with the factory as the space in which um, working subjectivities are produced, right, in which work can be studied. Um, and then as a result of the interventions of second wave 
second wave feminism, we might think about the household, um, and then more recently through racial capitalism, we're being encouraged to think through the plantation and the prison as, as spaces of work, as spaces through which working subjectivities um, are produced and manufactured. And each of these sites involves its own form of socialization, discipline, and subject formation. Um, and so my own site is a, is a slightly different site, so a, different, a slightly different site in which to think through some of these questions. Um, that is the site of the, as the marketplace, as I've, as I've mentioned, um, which of course um, has a long history and a long kind of literature um, in African studies. Right? So um, for many years people have been conducting research on, on, on the significance of African marketplaces as sites of communication, uh, of trade, particularly in intercultural um, and international trade, politics in relation to more recent deba debates on urban regeneration and development, as sites of performance, um, and also as transgressive spaces for gender roles and relations, right? There's very rich literature um, on markets in these kind of ways. However, less attention has been paid to the role of markets and particularly the transgressive potential of markets um, in relation to the study of work, right? <coughs> What is it about a marketplace? What does a marketplace do to preconceived ideas of work? Right? How might a marketplace make us rethink and reconceptualize dominant ways of thinking through work and labor? Right? There are also interesting places to ask these questions insofar as they are, they've almost become directly associated with the emergence um, of the types of categories and populations described earlier. Right? So the population of Nakasero, um, the market was constructed by the British Colonial Administration for around 300 people. Um, and today the infrastructure is, the physical infrastructure is very much the same um, and for those of you who haven't been, it's a space of kind of 300, 400 meters squared as you can kind of see in this image here and so this very same space and this very same infrastructure today provides a livelihood for over 10,000 people from across Uganda and the broader region so interesting to think about um, in the context of this so-called explosion or emergence of, of, of people seeking a livelihood outside of wage labor what are the ways in which um, they are making a living and making sense of what they're doing in spaces like Makassira, right? Um, so how has work been historically kind of categorized, imagined, and performed in these kind of spaces, right? Um, to what extent does, does thinking about mark work through the marketplace unsettle the single story of waged employment? And what alternative visions of work might it bring into view? And so I'm attracted also to, to Malik Simone and Edgar Peterson's idea of the marketplace, um, as a space that has long provided a context for witnessing how social and economic realities get done, as examples of collective self-management that unsettle the dominance of any one story. This is why governments see markets as dangerous places. Right? So there's a long association between markets and the transgressive, as spaces that are, are beyond the kind of direct regulation of, of, of the state. So I'm going to sketch out now, thinking historically through these questions um, in relation to the particular case of, of Nakasero market. So, a brief sketch of apologies for those of you who are familiar with the literature on, on Buganda. Um, Buganda, of course, one of the most largest and most influential Central African kingdoms at the end of the 19th century. Um, uh, this is coming through um, Holly Hansen's work um, through the archive on the pre-colonial kingdom. Um, so Hansen argues that the basic ecological unit in the region was the hill, surrounded by banana gardens, which formed the basis of Gander economy, sociology, and nutrition. Clanship 
um, she argues, was the primary marker of identity and solidarity. And political accountability provided through kind of decentralized networks of chiefs, which connect um, the Luberi, the Ganda Palace, um, with um, the provinces uh, beyond. Right? Um, Luberi, so the capital of the Buganda region, moved on the ascension of each different king um, and settling um, in modern-day Kampala um, towards the end of the 19th century. Right? And so this, would this word work have made sense in pre-colonial Uganda? Right? What, what does an engagement with the kind of archive, what does an engagement with the historical literature on Uganda do um, to our conceptualizations of work? Um, so to the Buganda, there was an emphasis on, on, on ties of reciprocal obligation um, to create connections to incorporate strangers and to vanquish competitors, in Hansen's words. Um, so rather than through market exchange, goods were provided through gift exchange and chiefs responsible for feeding their followers who would withdraw allegiance if they felt mistreated. Um, that is to say, rather than a market economy, um, this is a gift economy um, in which there's a great emphasis, going back into the anthropological literature, on accumulating wealth in people rather than wealth in material goods. Um, and so China Scherz has kind of brought this thesis up to date by arguing that in contemporary Buganda, strategies of self-making continue to involve creating and using networks, which are often hierarchical, to secure support, which is often material. Um, and so this was a space in which, um, as we shall see, um, the kind of modern-day conception of a marketplace didn't make a lot of sense. Right? And indeed, you can read the kind of history of the tensions and the arguments and debates that were taking place in the archive, um, through the archive, I should say, um, about the arrival of, of the kind of and the emergence of the first marketplaces um, in Buganda, um, which interestingly were, were promoted initially by not by the colonial administration but by the Catholic missionaries. Um, so, in the pre-colonial era, markets in the Great Lakes were restricted predominantly to borders and no man's lands between different kingdoms. Right. So no need for kind of market exchange within the kingdom itself, right? insofar as goods are provided through these kind of disaggregated networks um, of chiefs and gift exchange. Um, and so it was Catholic missionaries that made the case for a new market um, in 1881. And so this is from O'Flaherty's diary. The king asked me the other day as to how he could enrich this country. I gave him a few items of information. First, let there be a market, not where the king can sell his surplus supplies, but a market for the people, where the peasants can buy and sell, make profit, and get supplies. Right. And so Med Medar's kind of analysis of, of these kind of interactions was this is a way of concealing um, the reliance, the increased reliance on the Catholic Church on the monarchy for its survival um, in the Buganda region, for its ability to get supplies and reproduce itself. Um, and so a marketplace along these lines was very much seen to be in the interests um, of um, the Catholic Church. Um, interesting also for kind of thinking about for kind of um, challenging this kind of idea of, of, of the market as this kind of great secular institution, right, um, in, the, in the context of Buganda. Um, and so the Kabaka opens the first market um, in the Kabuga in 1882 and names it the child buys for himself, right, appealing to this kind of popular idea as, as, as of the market for the people. Um, and Medard argues that the, the people responded at the time um, by criticizing the Kabaka, right, by calling the Kabaka selfish, on account of the fact that they were now expected to purchase goods like cattle from his marketplace um, for cash um, and for exchange of, of, of other commodities, um, rather than through, through other forms of exchange and rather through gift exchange, most notably, uh, which has historically formed the basis of, of, of acquiring cattle in, in the kingdom. 
Um, we then see the entry of, of, of British colonial rule in, in 1890, um, led by Frederick Lugard, um, enshrined in the 1900 um, Buganda Agreement, which divides British from Buganda land, um, and accompanied by a range of land reforms and poll taxes, which Hansen argues forced um, people in the region to engage in activities outside of Ganda, outside of the realm of, of kind of Ganda notions of production. So compelling the indigenous population to engage in, in, in different forms of labor. And this is set out, um, I think, most effectively in, um, in the, the agreement itself, which you can now read um, at Q as part of the release of the restricted archive. Um, I believe that was released um, in relation to the Mau Mau settlement um, two or three years ago. Um, and so you can now read um, the original form of, of, of the correspondence between um, the British colonial administration and what will become the British colonial administration um, and the Baganda chiefs um, from 1900. Um, and so what, what I find most interesting about these kind of documents is a very kind of um, affecting critique of the idea, the very idea um, of, of a market, of a, of a market um, but also the idea of, of, a, of wage labour. Um, and so you see here on, t on point two in their response to, to Jackson and the British administration, we agree to the annual hut tax of one shilling a hut, which is a reasonable tax. We would, however, ask you how invalids and old men and women um, are to obtain means for this tax um, when they do not have access to, to wage employment, they do not have access to work. So there's an immediate concern with, with kind of how categories of person um, that don't conform this kind of racialized idea of the male wage worker are to, to conform um, and to comply, or, to, or simply to exist um, within the idea of the market economy put forward um, in the correspondence of the British administration. Um, and the letter ends by saying, many of our neighbours have, have regularly warned us that the Europeans will possess our country, um, but we protested against what they said. We pointed out to them that they could see for themselves that the Europeans, although powerful, respect our customs for the sake of our friendly relations. Now our neighbours will defeat us in this contention of ours. Um, and so Jackson's response um, to their concerns was to argue that if the result of the proposed change is to make idle men do a certain amount of work in return for the privilege of existing in this beautiful world, it will be a very good thing for Uganda. Her Majesty the Queen is the hardest worked woman in her dominions. So a real reification of the value of wage employment here based on a racialized idea of the male wage worker. And I think most Importantly, um, which is often missed within these kind of conceptualization, is the simultaneous um, distancing and, and criminalization even um, of all other forms of work. Right? Um, so rather than conforming to other forms of work, um, people are, other people in Uganda become labeled as idle men, right? idlers and criminals. Um, and also interesting, going back to Mbembe, is thinking about the role of the wage relation, the role of wage employment, um, and the justification of it, not in economic terms, um, but in kind of disciplinary terms, right? which is emphasized continually through these kind of correspondences in the archives. Um, so Jackson's successor argued that, I have no hesitation that this hut tax will prove to be the making of the country, not because of the revenue it brings in, but because of the habits of work it insulates. Right? this idea of disciplining bodies with the aim of making better use of them in relation to um, the colonial market economy. Um, and so we start to see the proliferation of diverse livelihood activities around this time. Um, the first market on, on 
Nakasura's current site was present in 1905. Um, it's an account from uh, a contemporary member of the market who's talking about um, his father and his grandfather and, and their engagement in, in earlier markets in Kampala. So he said, the Indians established a small market here where they could get onions and spices. It was not for local food, like cassava and so on, because that was for our indigenous people. When the spices were brought in here, we began digging them and selling them. Even my father used to come and sell spices in the market every morning um, after he was working in the palace. So he was working in the palace, um, but he was farming the spices on the side as an extra business. Right? So even as early as the kind of the very, the very start of the 20th century, you see the proliferation of diverse um, livelihood activities, and particularly the kind of straddling of the market and non-market economies. So in this case, his father's kind of performing um, uh, tributary labor um, for, the, for the Gandhi monarchy, um, at the same time as, as selling spices on the side um, in the market economy in Kampala. And so kind of early photographs of some of the first marketplaces in Kampala. And when thinking through the history of markets, it's also interesting to differentiate. Um, I try and kind of tease out the differences between the market as a colonial, the marketplace as a colonial institution, um, and kind of different assemblages or different ideas of marketplaces um, that were assembled in different parts of the city, um, or the modern-day city at this time. Right? So Nakasura Market was very much located um, within um, the racialized confines of, of Kampala Municipality, within so-called Indian commercial space located here within the center of Kampala. Um, so African kind of day vendors um, and, and, and so-called um, luggage carriers were permitted entry into the market during the day, um, but had to leave at night. Right? And so what that meant is that other forms of marketplace, other kind of ideas of marketplace began to proliferate in other bits of the city around, around the kind of edges of Kampala Township, um, conforming to different types of logic. Right? And what's interesting here is that these kind of market scenes conform much more, much more closely to kind of the contemporary Nakasura market um, than the colonial market did. Um, and, and what we see here is a much more flexible idea of the marketplace in which anyone can come on any given day without necessarily having a rental contract, um, without necessarily having to have a legally kind of um, designated space. Everyone can come on a given day with a certain amount of goods, um, pay a certain amount of money to the people around them and, and sell everything they had until, until they've done and they go home. They may come back the next day, they may not. Right. So a more kind of um, spontaneous um, and kind of iterative idea of the marketplace um, than that put forward by the colonial administrations. And we then see, of course, a, a range of, of, of uh, licensing laws and kind of legal instruments um, aiming to prohibit um, the entry of, of, of the so-called petty trader or African trader um, into the European and Indian marketplace. Right. Um, so there's this quite amazing quotation from um, a colonial researcher, Brailsford, um, in relation to the copper markets um, in, uh, or the markets uh, in the copper belt in, in Zambia, um, but which was also quoted and cited by, by colonial administrators in, in Kampala at the time. And he argued, it is not undesirable for an African to make money, but the danger lies in the second fascination, fascination of marketeering. For added to financial reward is the attraction of a leisurely way of life. The man is his own master. He does not have to follow the grind of monotonous labor. And chatting and gossiping between sales is a way of life that has its compensations, even in cases where the cash receipts are as not as big as from labor. In a great many cases, this desire for the leisurely life has developed into loafing, paid loafing, for there are a few shillings to be made. Such profits are not deserved, and they are earned by a lazy man or unemployed worker at the expense of the consumer. So again, we see this kind of real re-emphasis of this kind of racialized idea of the wage earning um, male uh, 
worker, right? And at the same time, the criminalization um, of all kind of all, diff all alternative ideas of what it means to work, right? Um, uh, going back to, to Eliashar's idea of fatic labor, right? A great, a great amount of the work in the marketplace, the contemporary marketplace, is exactly around these forms of networking, of gossiping, of negotiation, right? Of gift exchange, as we'll come to see. Um, and so we see in the 1930s um, a marketplace with very few people in it, right? A very kind of highly regulated space, um, suggested here by the kind of um, the policeman um, standing on the, on the kind of right hand side of the picture. Um, Observing and the kind of enforcement officer um, observing the space in front of him, right? A space that's very, a kind of a picture that's very difficult to imagine um, in, con in contemporary Kampala. Um, we then see in the 1960s, in the, the early kind of post independence era, um, scholars such as Christine Obo um, and Makaniki Musisi um, have written about the kind of in incremental role of, of, of the Gander market trader, and particularly the female Gander market trader um, in the early post-independence era. Um, so this is a famous postcard um, uh, of female fruit sellers in front of the new Ugandan parliament buildings in the 1960s. And so Musisi argues that during this period, um, the, the retreat of the colonial state um, and, and in some sense the kind of um, partialities of the, the independent state created new spaces and opportunities um, for women to enter um, the cash economy. Um, so Ganda women began trading from their households on footpaths and roads in the passageways between city buildings and in open-air marketplaces akin to those that we saw a minute ago. Um, they also created their own new kind of urban infrastructures, um, including the female night market, the Tonyira Mukangi, or Don't Step in Mine. So Masisi argues that the Tonyira is a place where Ganda women pursue aggressive mini-capitalist ventures, selling food by the light of paraffin lanterns to meet a demand generated by shortages of food and cooking, cooking equipment. Um, in the early post-colonial era, right? Um, so we see the kind of starting the proliferation of different ideas of work, and if you like, the reappropriation of the marketplace um, by um, the Ganda population, and particularly by Ganda women, right? combining ideas of market exchange, mini capitalist ventures described in Musisi, um, with other forms of reciprocation, right? Through which women, for example, would one five or six different women would share the same space in the marketplace, right? and share childcare responsibilities um, on the occasions where they were unable to attend the market. In the 1970s, um, um, this is an image of, a, uh, of an Asian man being arrested on Kampala Road next to the marketplace um, uh, as part of the, the expulsion um, in the 1970s. Um, uh, seen an interesting era in terms of Amin's Uganda, um, in terms of uh, this is we're kind of entering into the kind of oral history of the marketplace here, the living history of the marketplace, in which people would talk about the role of fatic labor, the role of kind of hidden channels and communications for sustaining life in the market, right? Um, so there's a period of heavy regulation, um, of tariffs, of rationing, um, which was negotiated um, by people in the market through these forms of fatic labor. Um, illustrated by the fact that by the 19, early 1980s, politicians had to come and address the market vendors in the market um, rather than the other way around. Um, so this is uh, Alara Kello um, addressing market traders in 1980, pleading with them to obey government legislation um, on price restrictions. Um, and so this kind of reappropriation, if you like, of the market or, or kind of pluralization of the idea of what the marketplace is continues um, to the present day and to the kind of era privatization, 
um, through which market vendors have, have continually over kind of a 20-year period successfully resisted um, redevelopment and privatization by laying claim to alternative ideas, um, very particular ideas about what the marketplace is. So a lot of their placards during this period read things like, um, don't you want us to eat? Right? So making claims to the moral economy of the marketplace. Right? Um, making claims of their livelihood, but also making claims over the marketplace as a broader institution, um, an educational institution, um, a place that provides food um, and also contacts and livelihood to new arrivals in the city. Um, eventually um, ending in a, a consultation with the very opportunistic uh, Museveni um, just prior to uh, the election. And so the kind of final slide here is thinking about so during this period, we've seen this kind of journey from or this kind of interaction of, of different ideas of work um, through the pre-colonial era, thinking about the role of gift exchange in, in constituting persons and, and ideas of economy and sociality, through the colonial era, through this kind of very deliberate attempt to kind of tie down and reduce this very restrictive idea of work as, wage, as kind of masculine wage labour, um, and then into the kind of neoliberal Uganda, in which we have a different kind of idea, this kind of idea of entrepreneurship starts to, to enter popular discourse, um, and scholars like Wiegratz have, have argued um, for the proliferation of, of so-called neoliberal norms and values um, within these kind of marketplaces, right? Um, so affecting the moral order of the marketplace, these kind of neoliberal norms and values manifested in the rise of individual self-interest, acquisitiveness, and ruthlessness. Um, so there's a question really, for, an ethnographic question, um, which is about how the idea, this particular idea of the marketplace interacts with previous ideas, right? Um, both Gander ideas of the marketplace as being a kind of foreign institution, right, um, which, which is kind of um, undermines um, systems of gift exchange um, to this kind of more restrictive, reductive idea of the British colonial administration marketplace. Right? How do these kind of different ideas of what it is to be a marketplace and what it is to work in the marketplace interact with one another? Um, so that's the kind of ethnographic question. There's the last snapshot, if you like, um, before I provide some reflections. Okay. So this is the market at the time of my um, entry in 2014, um, at which point, as I said, around 10,000 people um, are residing in this particular place. Um, and so one of my first tasks was, to, was, was trying to kind of um, write down and I'm trying to under, get to grips with all the different social economic activities that were taking place um, within this space. Um, and so it soon became apparent that this task was akin to that of writing a dictionary, right? Insofar as, as soon as you would write down um, 10, 20, 30, 40 different activities that were taking place in a different space, um, a dozen more would kind of um, arise, or fusions of different activities would, would arise. Or people would describe what they were doing differently on, on different days. Um, but from kind of more um, conventional understandings of, of work in, re in relation to procurement, retail, wholesaling, brokering, transporting, valeting, um, to kind of more intermediary activities like speculation, money lending, gambling, um, and service provision involving entertainment, catering, waitressing, cleaning, recycling, etc. Right? Um, and so this in terms of the thinking about work, um, one of the puzzles here was thinking about the ways in which people made sense of their exchanges in the market, right? and exchanges which did not conform to conventional ideas of, of, of wage exchange. Um, so to give an example, um, somebody would, when you go and park your car in, in the market, which is very difficult to do, um, two or three um, guys will come and um, kind of block off a space for you, will guide you to the best place in the market. A very familiar scene in, in, in markets all over the world. Um, and uh, they will not expect 
um, uh, an immediate payment necessarily um, for that service. Right? What they will expect, however, is for you to procure another service for them, is to kind of enter into a different kind of contract with them through which um, they then carry your shopping for you around the marketplace, right? um, which then would raise expectations of, of, of cash payment. But there's all kinds of other kinds of interactions um, in which a service is rendered um, without an immediate economic return. So there's a question about what this does to our conception of work when we suspend payment, when, we suspend the, when the return is somehow suspended. Right? Um, how might this kind of complicate our understandings of work um, and, and, and the wage relation? Um, and so to try and get to grips with some of these questions, um, um, so in addition to kind of mapping out different um, socioeconomic activities, it also involved kind of mapping out different social and cultural institutions in the market, which again were um, numerous um, from all kinds of, of, of kind of committees which appear to have borrowed the language of, of the kind of colonial administration, so market disciplinary committees in particular, um, and the language of the contemporary Ugandan state. For example, there was even a market um, defence committee responsible for defending the market um, from the incursions um, of outside forces. Um, but also a range of kind of sporting, cultural, um, and, and institutions that might be associated with forms of um, uh, social welfare, right? burial societies, um, forms of social assistance um, that you can appeal to um, on, in cases where you're unable to work. And so in illuminating these kind of, the, the interaction of these kind of um, economic activities and the social institutions that underpin them, um, I had a kind of ethnographic extract which follows one particular member of the market around over the course of a typical market day. Um, and so this is Alex, um, who's um, in his early 20s, um, and he describes his role in the market as one of a, a waste picker and a recycler, right? as someone who moves um, rubbish and collects rubbish from different parts and waste from different parts of the market and deposits it at the rubbish dump. Right? And so I'll now try and illustrate some of his kind of daily interactions um, uh, as, as a way of thinking through um, different kind of forms of work that exist in the contemporary market. Um, and so Alex is 26, year old, um, in 26 years old, and he arrived in the market um, about three years ago um, uh, as an orphan without a secondary school qualification or the contacts or capital necessary to enter other areas of the market, right? Without the contacts or capital necessary to enter um, the, the proper kind of market economy, right, as in the, the, the sale of, of, of commodities. Um, and so in Simone's word, he might, he might be said as someone who arrived in the market with only his bare life, um, to offer. Um, and so he, w he wakes up um, every morning around six in the morning on the veranda of a hardware store on the edge of the market. He's woken by Frank Matovu, the owner of the shop, who greets him before opening his business. Frank and Alex are the same age. A university graduate, Frank is responsible for one of his mother's several shops in the market, including handling phone calls to suppliers of tools and appliances from China and Dubai. Right? Um, so conventional kind of sociological analysis would, would put Frank and Alex in, in very different um, class categorizations. Right? Um, the shop veranda offers Alex a space of shelter and relative safety not found in other areas of the market or the center of Kampala, um, which Frank provides in return for the security that Alex offers his shop at night through his provision of eyes on the street. Frank describes Alex as a low earner in the market, so a kind of class distinction, and in doing so invokes the obligations that so-called high earners, such as himself, have in providing Alex um, with forms of, of work, advice, and, and other um, unnamed forms of material support. So after waking up on, on, on Frank's shop veranda, Alex shop crosses the road sorry, into the 
ghetto. Um, and the ghetto is the entry point into the market with people with only their bare lives, as I've said, and willingness to engage in challenging forms of physical labour. New arrivals buy their entry into the market, into the ghetto, through the offer of gifts, which are then shared out among the group. After initially being chased away from the market on his arrival, Alex secured his entry through the offer of cigarettes, which were then shared out among the group. So in this particular space, he takes a drink of Waraji, Ugandan spirit, and exchanges stories with other men in the area um, from the night before. After a couple of hours, he then says he begins work, or he begins his hustle. He leaves the ghetto and walks through the Kabengo. The Kabengo is inhabited by a younger group of men who arrived in the market with small amounts of capital, which they were able to purchase um, single sacks of produce that they sell in this open area of the market. So this is the area of the market that very much resembles, if you like, the very early uh, markets of the 20th century, which we see on the outskirts of the colonial capital. Right? People arriving and negotiating access to space with a single sack of, of, of goods to sell um, in a single day. Um, new arrivals to this space must place their produce on the road designation on the edge of the market, where they risk being confiscated by council enforcement officers. They then seek to enter the market proper by performing favours um, for those further exchange inside. Um, by moving kind of to the right, moving into the market, um, for example, by watching someone's stock while they're away, by offering to sell their stock for them um, for a number of days, um, and through various other forms of kind of favours and exchange um, that take place over the course of a, a market thing. <coughs> On their entry into the Kamengo, young men take a great deal of care to manage their reputation as a good boy, as opposed to a muyai, a so-called thief or a moral deviant. A good boy in the market is generally understood to be someone who uses their full family name as opposed to a pseudonym, abstains from crime, drugs and alcohol, and speaks well to market elders. So these categories are interesting. There's a kind of fusion of this kind of colonial idea of, of, the, of the good, um, valorized kind of male wage employee, um, and this kind of gander idea of, of the kind of... Um, of the, good, of the good kind of reciprocator, of, of the person who, 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 is re, who is respectful of the kind of social hierarchies of the market and, and is able to reciprocate and redistribute um, as they kind of move through the market structure. Um, and so success in this area of the market requires young men to speak in multiple registers, to master the soft deferential tones expected by customers and suppliers, as well as the loud, self-confident performances geared towards the protection of their space from their immediate neighbours and competitors. Um, so Alex kind of arrives in this area, he greets um, the guys working here and engages in bets and arguments relating to sporting matches the night before and before continuing towards the upper stalls um, where his, his kind of work of, of, of waste collection begins. And this area of the market is populated probably by female Luo vendors of Kenyan origin selling imported fruit and vegetables from as far as Egypt and South Africa. As Frank arrives, he greets Margaret, a young female vendor at the end of the row. He then cleans the ditch behind her stall, dividing the discarded produce between that which is spoiled and consigned to the dump and that which is salvageable and may be sold from the floor in the ghetto. People in the market make a common distinction between first and second class produce. First class produce is sold in these kind of areas of the stalls, often imported um, uh, fruit and vegetables, um, seen as high class, fetches a higher price, um, and associated with a particular type of customer, um, often Indian Ugandan customers. Um, on the other hand, second class produce um, is produce which is not spoiled, which is nevertheless fetches a much lower price, um, and is sold to a different kind of more working class, if you like, customer base um, on the outskirts of the market. And so 
Alex's job, in addition to kind of cleaning the marketplace, is differentiating between these three categories of produce um, and kind of reforming um, and reorganizing the marketplace in relation to these categories. Um, so in, relation, in return for his work of cleaning, Monica pays, Frank, uh, pays Alex um, about 1,000 shillings, about 30 cents. However, she also pay, provides him with additional forms of support as and when they are needed, for example, by bailing him out of the local police post when he's arrested under the Vagrancy Act um, on a regular basis. And so Alex makes his first trip back to the ghetto carrying one sack of rubbish and one sack of second-class produce um, to sell behind the road. And you can see the kind of differentiation between the dump um, and the sale of second-class produce here at the front. At the end of the market day, he makes around um, 8,000 shillings, about $2.50, um, of which he spends around 2,000 on food and drink, and uh, 2,000 on food, 2,000 on drink, and remains around 4,000. However, rather than keeping this on his person, he gives it to a moneylender um, in the market to keep safe. Over the course of this single market day, Alex is involved in exchanges and interactions with a diverse range of people, generating social and material compositions across a range of singular capacities and needs, um, and contributing to the reproduction of the market as a social and a material space. Right? So he's physically moving the materials around the market and reproducing the market in this kind of way, um, but he's also contributing to the re reproduction of these kind of categories and hierarchies um, through which um, these forms of reciprocation and redistribution are taking place. Um, and so the social organisation of the market draws heavily on notions of socio-spatial hierarchy, of high and low earners, of first and second class produce, um, in ways that are, are, are kind of um, uh, remind me of, of, of a lot of the kind of literature coming out on the Buganda sociology um, and of gift exchange. Um, and the, the kind of activities and exchanges between these categories are arguably illustrative of Ferguson's idea of distributive labour, right? moving kind of products materials and resources across um, very different sets of capacities and needs. Um, but in this sense, it's a kind of hierarchical sense of redistribution from the so-called high earners um, and vendors of, of first-class produce to the so-called low earners. And so obligations to extend forms of social and material support emerge around particular practices um, negotiated through a range of moral categories which have their histories both in the colonial um, administration um, and the Ganda pre-colonial era. So these categories of the good boy and the muyang. And so when I asked Alex what he's doing in the market, how he would describe um, his activities over this kind of market day, um, he would draw upon the, word, uh, the verb okukola, to work. Um, but of course on further inspection, this is a word um, in Luganda which has many other meanings. Right? It's a word which also means to make, to make do, right? in relation to the kind of ethnographic literature on make do, um, to construct, to execute, to perform, to toil, to abuse, and to mend. So again, an emphasis on this kind of, um, this kind of cyclical um, feature of, of the work that he's performing in the market. However, him and the other people working with him in the ghetto would also use different kind of verbs. So it would also draw upon a language of struggle and survival um, in, in articulating what they're doing in the market. And again, when kind of thinking about the market as a place of work, people were quick to kind of re-designate the marketplace or to pluralise ideas of the marketplace also as a school, a garden and a pharmacy for the common man. Right? A pharmacy in the sense of a place where people could access spices and kind of home, home remedies. Markets are important for building society People come from all over the country and learn to lose their bad habits and to be in one line, to have a good heart and to help others. So again, this is kind of disciplinary, um, social, socialising effect of the marketplace, albeit based on a very different kind of idea of the market to that articulated um, by the British Colonial Administration. Um, 
And so there's a couple, a couple of last slides on, on this work of redistribution and how people decide whether to redistribute to others or not, right? We're invoking ideas of kind of um, hierarchical status, um, but also faith, right? So a lot of the money lending in, um, institutions were run by Pentecostals, Pentecostal Christians. Um, and yet these kind of categories kept resurfacing in these explanations, right? So this distinction between the criminal, the Muyai, and the good boy. Um, and, and I noticed that these categories could be mobilized by hyenas to deny the redistributive requests of young men. So you could mobilize this idea of the Muyai in order to deny the request um, of someone to whom you're obliged to share resources. Um, and so distributive labor in the market thus requires young men to conform to a certain normative idea of the good market citizen. Right? However, I argue this idea of the good market citizen is a much broader understanding um, than that um, of the waged employee. So some final reflections. In many senses, the history of the market can be read as a refusal of people in market in Nakasero to abstract work from life, to disembed the economy um, from the realm of the social. So rather than a, a, a passively accepting the kind of commodification of their labour, um, the people in the market have mobilised alternate theories of value um, grounded in local history and culture. And so the result is neither the annihilation of pre-colonial systems of exchange and reciprocation, as is often assumed in some of the kind of neoliberal literature, right? In which everyone is kind of walking around um, and kind of hustling and, and, and continually after kind of um, very individualistic ideas of accumulation. Um, but neither are these, neither do these kind of pre-colonial institutions emerge unscathed in this kind of contemporary moment. And what we instead see is the proliferation of diverse forms of life and labor produced through the interaction of market and non-market non forms of exchange. So what Polanyi would term the double movement. Um, and so, as many have argued, we need to dif better differentiate between the diverse forms of life and labor that are often folded into the categories of informal, entrepreneurial, or surplus, in order to avoid reproducing narrow conceptualizations of work based on the historical experiences of wage laborers industrial in Europe. Right? And so, Alex's work in the market may be characterized as informal, insofar as it's unrecognized and un unregistered by the state. However, such a conceptualization would conceal the form-generating qualities of his work and the various social and cultural institutions that regulate it. Right? At the same time, Alex's work in the market might be categorized as an entrepreneurial, insofar as it involves the creation of economic activity out of individual endeavor. However, such a conceptualization would conceal the social structures and relationships that facilitate his work in the market. And at the same time, Alex's work in Nakasori may again be characterized as surplus, insofar as it appears to be unvalued or minimally valued um, by the capitalist economy. However, again, such a conceptualization would conceal the value of his work to the real or needs-based economy of Kampala. And so I argue that the seeds of an alternative story of work in Kampala and in Uganda are located in these howevers, these besides, and these elsewheres. Um, and this is the starting point for thinking differently um, in this regard. That's all I've got. Thank you.